This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. From the Chronicle podcast system, this is the NPC podcast of the National Pharmaceutical Congress for June 21, 2023. The NPC podcast is where we discuss and consider the purpose, process and people of the pharma industry. So, let's continue the healthcare conversation. This program is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Impress is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Impress tailored best-in-class solutions at www.impress.com. Our guest today is Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association in Toronto. Justin will join your hosts, Jim, Mark, and Mitch. To kickstart today's conversation, here's Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome back to the NPC podcast from the National Pharmaceutical Congress. I'm your co-host, Mitch Shannon, here counting all my shoppers' drug market optimum points, so many points. So many things you can do with your optimum points. We're here in our podcast gondola with James Shea, General Manager at the Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education in Montreal. And Jim, uh, turning to the subject of football, the CFL season got underway this past weekend. And I happen to see the Toronto Argos get past our despised Hamilton Tiger Cats. What kind of a season do you think the Concords of Montreal might have in store? Well, you know, I can pretty much guarantee that the Concords are going to go undefeated, as will the McGill Redmond for sure. You know, it's all about offensive line here in Montreal, and my insiders are telling me that the coaches are studying uh, hours and hours of road construction blockade video as a model for shutting down that rush. And it's very ironic that uh, Montreal hosts the quickest, most nimble cars in the world in a Grand Prix while perfecting the art of multi-year construction gridlock. So, you know, it's a good model here. It's a perfect model. It's one of the reasons we adore Montreal. Another VIP and fan of the city of Montreal here in the gondola is the pharmaceutical industry consultant and health policy expert, Mr. Mark McElwain. Uh, Mark, where do you stand on the matter of Canadian Football League? You know, a friend of mine actually mentioned the CFL last night. Of course, it was in the context of giving up on last night's Jays game, maybe giving up on the whole season too. But, you know, for those of us who can still watch a CFL game, they may be our last hope. Those Argos. Well, I do recommend the experience. It was actually pretty good fun. We are your podcast hosts, known simply as Jim, Mark, and Mitch, because all the time-honored brand names have already been taken, such as the Shreveport Steamers and Sunwing Airlines. So, well, welcome a new guest, but a familiar figure in healthcare, Justin J. Bates. Hi, Justin. Good morning, and thanks for having me on this podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. You're the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, the OPA. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the organization and its current vision? I'd be happy to. OPA has been around for 50 plus years, really looking at supporting and advancing the pharmacy profession in Ontario and, you know, where applicable across uh, Canada when we look at uh, some of the federal policies that have an impact on uh, community pharmacy practice in Ontario on a provincial basis. We primarily are a, an advocacy organization. We're a not-for-profit voluntary association, which of course brings both opportunities and challenges in the current ecosystem. 
And we do see ourselves um, in a representation model that tries to bridge all of the diversity within the marketplace. So looking at independent pharmacists and pharmacy owners, retail, corporate, and banner, as well as all the different practice models, whether that's family health teams, hospital, long-term care, and community, of course. So we advocate on their behalf with public plans like the ODB program in Ontario for coverage of drugs, as well as with private plans and liaising on a number of those challenges and develop practice tools and research to help implement and operationalize policies and services in the pharmacy operational environment. In addition to that, we offer professional development programs to help educate and support pharmacists in their pursuit of excellence in patient care. And one of our hallmarks is insurance. So we have professional liability insurance in addition to just about every other line of business of insurance you can imagine, something that we do mostly in-house. Justin, it's Mark. So I'm wondering what would be the biggest challenge you've faced in your role and how you've navigated around it? Yeah, it's a great question as we look at, you know, post-COVID. And we're, we're told that COVID's over, although, you know, I've seen an uptick in uh, cases and hearing more and more about that in the recent weeks. So hopefully we are emerging from this global pandemic. I had the good fortune and, and maybe misfortune of starting at OPA in this current uh, role back in September of 2019. So, you know, when I, I took this role, I spent about 14 years in pharmacy advocacy at a trade association. I certainly couldn't have anticipated, as no one could have at the time, that we'd be entering eight months into my tenure into a public health crisis. And, you know, certainly the plans that I had were ambitious to transform and modernize the association and our service offerings and to really uh, move the needle on a number of very important practice initiatives around scope of practice and financial sustainability of the sector being the front and center of everything we do. And then, of course, you're shifting right away into a crisis management mode. And, you know, that was the, the challenge from managing the culture of the organization through office closures and also, you know, within our membership who did not have the luxury of being able to stay at home, remained open throughout the pandemic, unlike a lot of the other parts of healthcare and, you know, the economy in general. So we learned a lot, had to be agile, and we leveraged the opportunity. And it's unfortunate that you sometimes need a public health crisis, similar to H1N1 back in 2013, that was certainly a help for getting pharmacists the scope to be authorized to give flu shots. We saw an opportunity here to demonstrate how community pharmacies as healthcare hubs can do more can step up and provide solutions to help combat the pandemic, but also more long-term as well. And we're underutilized based on pharmacist expertise and what we can offer in terms of public health, primary care, and medication management. And this gave us an opportunity to really start to demonstrate to the public, first and foremost, what pharmacists can do, what they're doing today, and where we can take this profession uh, coming out of the pandemic. So the awareness of and the value, both from a policymaker perspective in government and with the general population, I think skyrocketed because of the access to a trusted healthcare provider and the vacuum of information that was out there in some ways. The translation of science communications was probably our biggest challenge. You know, everything coming down from NASI to the provincial eligibility rules for COVID vaccines, you know, there was just so much demand and pharmacists really stepped up. So we were able to I think, raise the profile. And we're starting to see that pharmacists are part of those dinner table conversations, similar to what maybe doctors and nurses were in previous conversations. There's an emotional connection now and greater appreciation out there for 
the value and the role of pharmacists. And, you know, I think that coming out of the pandemic is something we want to build on that momentum. And certainly we need fair and reasonable reimbursement to support pharmacists in implementing all of these new services. Uh, but we have a, an excellent opportunity to create capacity in the healthcare system and to increase access for patients to community-based services. And, and I think we're well positioned to do that. That's good. I wonder if you could just dig a little bit deeper and uh, give an example of how the OPA has effectively represented the interests of Ontario pharmacists and contributed to the advancement of the profession. Yeah, I think the, the, the hallmark of what we've been able to accomplish is, you know, collectively, when you think of all the stakeholders that were involved, but certainly led by, by OPA is the paradigm shift into prescribing authority, something that uh, Ontario is playing a bit of catch up when compared to other jurisdictions, but over a decade of advocacy research to demonstrate both the the value to the healthcare system and patient access and, and health outcomes, but also the economic value from a return on investment perspective from government of enabling and implementing the minor ailments program. And while it's still a very cautious approach in Ontario, it launched in, in January of this year, what we've seen is an incredible uptick in the number of pharmacies that are, are providing the services and the number of assessments that patients have received well in excess of 240,000 now in, in just six months. So, you know, I think that speaks to the readiness of the public, the, the appetite to have these types of services in more of a turnkey solution so they're not bouncing around the system. It also speaks to filling some gaps in, in the healthcare system when we look at two and a half million Ontarians without a, a general practitioner, a doctor, family doctor. You know, there is opportunities for pharmacists and other healthcare providers to really step up. So we led that and the education to support it and a number of practice tools that we developed throughout the pandemic to help with the COVID vaccination program, point of care testing and Paxlovid prescribing, um, and really enabling that scope of practice and reimbursement to support it um, over the last three and a half years has, has been tremendous success. And we've got a lot of work still to do to increase our scope of practice and bring us up to hopefully the high watermark of where Alberta is in terms of scope of practice across the country. Well, that's some amazing initiative you've pulled off over the last three years. It's Jim here. Are there any other recent initiatives, maybe a bit more minor, that you guys are undertaking to uh, under your leadership? that have affected the pharmacy community in Ontario? Yeah, I think we're, you know, looking at our scope priorities and, you know, trying to continue to build on the success of some of the uh, previous programs. When we look at things like routine immunizations, there's over 2 million Ontarians that missed their routine immunizations. And we know that community pharmacies have operationalized vaccinations and immunizations very well. And it's something that we want to continue to provide solutions to both the public health side but also some of the primary care services to help fill those gaps. And really what I think the biggest challenge has been for us is changing perceptions, right? So when you think about those dinner table conversations that I referenced earlier, how do you get people thinking about pharmacy differently? And this is really a seismic shift and transformation in what we're seeing in the practice models, um, particularly in community, but also in some of the other settings as well. But when you think about where are we going with healthcare and what we experienced during the pandemic with virtual care and a lot more services that were omni-channel in terms of home deliveries, home-based care, 
delivering services in a completely different way, which is going to create some efficiencies, but also challenges in a model that is very rooted traditionally in bricks and mortar. And when you think of our footprint of being almost 5,000 pharmacies or points of care throughout the province, you know, how do we equip our members and the sector in, as a whole to embrace technology, embrace the disruptors out there, the Amazon pharmacies that are going to be here, and the other elements that are both opportunities and threats? And do we lead that or does that change lead us? Because change is going to happen. It's already happening. Patients are demanding uh, different ways to have care delivered to them. And I think that's our opportunity is to provide that vision and leadership to make sure we have sustainable pharmacies and that we continue to leverage the expertise and trust that pharmacy professionals have with their patients and be solution focused with government and private payers so that we're incorporating and integrating all of these technological advancements, but at the same time, not losing that uh, core of what we do in terms of medication management and that counseling, the one-on-one counseling and shifting that to a service model. Because when you think about pharmacy has been rooted in a drug distribution model really since its inception, right? And you know that transaction, that dispensing function isn't going to go away, but but it is shifting. It's shifting from a deflationary perspective on where the margin is in pharmacy, how you make money now, to where the needs are in the healthcare system. So it's shifting from that transaction drug distribution model into a service model, which has completely different business around it in terms of overhead costs, in terms of how you operationalize that service. Patients now seeing the pharmacist from out behind the counter now out in talking to them, touching them, the you know appointment-based model where we're no longer the fast food, if you will, analogy where people expect to come in and demand to have that service very quick because that's what they've been conditioned for. Now we're, we're saying, no, we're a healthcare provider in a retail setting. We have to figure that out from store configuration to, you know, do we look at the workforce and, and needs there in terms of uh, pharmacists to technicians? So all of these things are going through an evolution. And as a, an association, you know, we want to lead that and prepare our members with innovation and technology tools that they can implement and to grow their business and evolve it so that they can continue to be thriving in their communities. It's amazing insights. I've always been a proponent of the pharmacist as an important healthcare professional and the idea of moving from a dispensing fee to a professional fee. And, you know, I've been quoted in public as saying, you know, one of the most important things is to have our pharmacists involved in the constant management of the patient, because if the pharmacist isn't doing their job and helping out the patient, nothing's translating down to the patient. So it's very interesting. And how do you get the customer, the patient, the, the caregiver, whoever's involved in supporting that patient, how do you get them understanding the message that you're trying to put out there that, hey, pharmacists are are here for you and you know, use our professional knowledge. How are you doing that? Mm -hmm. There's a three-legged stool to that, right? There's the public relations component to that. So, you know, looking at digital platforms, traditional media to get your message out around, this is what pharmacists do and the value and, and awareness. Because I think there still is that perception issue, both with government and with patients that, you know, you see the pharmacist behind the counter in the lab coat, dispensing medications, counting pills, People don't necessarily appreciate what goes into the dispensing and all of the work that goes behind the scenes. And so that's the traditional perception that we're breaking down the barriers of. And you're starting to see some innovative practice models where when you walk into the store, it's not 
your traditional pharmacy anymore. In U.S., they have the pharmacy and the pharmacist in the middle and some of the uh, CVS um, stores that I've seen rather than at the back of the store. They're not behind a counter. The intake happens very different in terms of walking in with a prescription. So all of those things, I think the the way you operationalize these services will help, but getting the message out with the, the first leg of that stool, and that's your, your Air Force, right? Awareness is key. And then, you know, the, the government relations component is the other leg of that. We need to continue to build the payment models and the practice models. So scope of practice, you know, convincing government to put in new regulations and policies and the college for that matter to support this advancement. Because without that, you know, we're not going to be able to take advantage of some of the opportunities to provide more patient care. And we've seen that with vaccinations, how effective it is and what the receptivity of the population is very high, um, both from a trust perspective and a and need to access these services. But we're bound by the limited scope that we do have. So I think that's a big piece of it and funding it appropriately so that you know, we can spend the amount of time we need to, which is a lot more when you're doing counseling, you're sitting with a patient and you're looking at their overall healthcare needs holistically. And that goes much more than just med rec, like a med check program. We need to redesign some of our existing programs to take advantage of that. And it's going to save the system money. So that's a big piece of it. And then communications, communications to our members to really uh, also put forward the best practices and support them with all the tools. But at the end of the day, you know, you know, it's going to be people. It's a grassroots movement that will move government in the direction we need to. And we need to work with the other stakeholders who can sometimes be the rate limiting step, whether that's physician groups or others that, you know, money talks, politics talks, uh, and turf, right? Those are the three barriers to any healthcare provider getting an enhanced scope. And, you know, we saw some of that when we implemented prescribing authority, some of the traditional reactions, misinformation out there. But, you know, we, we know we can get over that. Yeah, well, we're talking about all things pharmacy with Justin Bates of the Ontario Pharmacists Association here on the NPC podcast, and we're secretly hoping he's going to swipe our cards and give Jim Mark and me uh, some uh, optimum points or Bewell bucks or John Co. two coins when we're done here. But in the meantime, during one of Jim's questions, you referred to advancements in technology and telehealth. Specifically, Justin, how do you envision the future of pharmacy practice in Ontario, and what steps is the OPA taking to adapt to these changes? It's about innovation and embracing it, right? So, you know, we're actually in the process of creating a center of pharmacy information and learning, which we aptly named Copil. And part of that is making investments in platforms that will automate as well as innovate the way that they're delivering the services. So we envision a program that will basically automate and run their entire business in a single platform from A to Z. We've made those investments in a company called Box Labs and also MapFlow, which is a minor ailments prescribing tool. It's all integrated and cloud-based. So I think technology is one thing for sure. And you know, not looking at the virtual or central fill, home deliveries, mail order as a threat. But in order to do that, we need to make sure that pharmacists can practice in an environment where patients continue to have choice and that they're not restricted to go to one particular pharmacy over another with these preferred provider networks that are closed. Uh, or specialty networks. So, you know, we want to have a level playing field so that any provider can participate, whatever the plan details are. And we embrace the technology because at the end of the day, you know, the value is the relationship with the patient and that counseling. How you deliver the medications can be done in many different ways. And I think there will always be a role for in-person care, obviously for certain services that has to be in-person, but 
for counseling, you know, people may prefer a phone consult or a video conference. And in that way, you can be a lot more efficient, both for the patient and the provider. And, and that's not a threat, actually. That's an opportunity to expand patient access and to get into more rural and remote communities where travel to urban centers is problematic or challenging. So, you know, the drug distribution model needs to evolve. And part of that is central fill and mail order and virtual care components to it. And then taking advantage of the opportunities for the in-person care in a setting that's more conducive to healthcare and taking the time to sit with the patient and walk through their conditions and help manage that because we're moving into a place of chronic disease management, whether that's looking at testing, you know, everything from prescribing to assessing to dispensing, as opposed to where we've been traditionally, which is really just in the dispensing side and counseling on those medications. And I think that's exciting because when you look at the PharmDs and the students that are graduating, this is how they want to practice. And in Ontario, we're going to lose more out of the workforce to provinces like Alberta that have the high watermark of being able to prescribe for any medication that's not a controlled substance. So, you know, we do risk that drain of resources if we don't keep pace and really implement a model that takes advantage of that patient interaction with the pharmacist. Justin, it's uh, Mark again. So I wanted to ask a bit more about advocacy, but you've already talked a lot about advocacy at the provincial level. So maybe we can focus at the national level and the advocacy to promote the interests of pharmacy Canada-wide. Yeah, and that's quite a salient topic right now when you look at what's happening nationally with drug shortages, when you look at the whole arena around pricing on brand and generic and negotiations there with PMPRB and, and the PCPA. So what, what we've seen, you know, I think the last decade or more is continual price deflation, which has had a, a massive impact on our strategies from a supply chain perspective and introduced vulnerabilities and instability into our supply chain. So, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, the instances of drug shortages from OTC to Schedule 1 have skyrocketed. You know, when you look at the essential medicines that are in short supply, when you look at everything from antibiotics to Tylenol, you know, I think we're in a crisis. And part of that is how do we create the incentives for manufacturers to increase domestic capacity and have less dependency on foreign sources of API and manufacturing. So I think price reductions, people have looked for efficiencies. So that's led to less suppliers for certain therapeutic areas and, and looking at places like India to source their API. And when things shut down or there's a plant issue in India or China, that's when you start to see the squeeze on our supply chain. So there's got to be fair value for money from a taxpayer government perspective and fully supportive of that. But if we want to be the lowest cost jurisdiction, which is in some people's mind where we should be, you know, they compare us to New Zealand, though it's not apples to apples, then it comes at a cost. And, and that cost is you're not going to have tier one status for new launches of drugs. And you're going to have that in unpredictability and instability in the supply chain, which could lead to drug shortages. So for us, you know, we work through CPHA, the Canadian Pharmacists Association and other stakeholders. But given the size of the province, we do see a, a role for us to you know, have that policy discussion with Health Canada and, and with some of the cabinet ministers, Minister of Health as well, to say, we need to look at the data, but we also need to be able to define what kind of healthcare system do we want. Our country has a small population with a huge geography, and we need to not compare ourselves to smaller countries that uh, have introduced more draconian measures in the supply chain side. So I think that's key for us. We want to make sure 
that's fair, transparent, reasonable, and stable supply chain. And then, um, of course, the biggest debate right now that's alive in, in Parliament is around this idea of national pharmacare, an idea that doesn't seem to want to go away for some good reasons, because we have a certain percentage of Canadians that are either uninsured or underinsured, meaning that they can't afford the coverage or co-pays that they have. And uh, there's a real opportunity to fill the gaps or complete the plan, if you will, and look at each province who has their own pharmacare program and work in a bilateral way. So the government, with their cooperation agreement to stay in power with the NDP, have agreed to having uh, legislation in place by the end of this year for national pharmacare. The problem is nobody can define a consistent definition of what national pharmacare is. The NDP, of course, have a definition that they just put forward in their private members bill last week, which is a single payer system. You know, only problem with that is the government can't afford it. And when you think about the credit rating, where it's right now for Canada is very, very precarious, uh, could be downgraded. The dental care program they implemented recently has cost a lot more than originally projected. I know that's not a shock, but you know, if you look at adding a, a single payer system, we would take people who have private coverage today that covers more drugs than the public plan and moving them from private to public. And so you're spending money that you don't need to rather than addressing the gaps. And so our, our goal is to work with, you know, with the prime minister's office and cabinet to come up with uh, a solution that is practical to implement. And it's a mixed payer model, what we have today. And either work bilaterally like they did with PEI and provide funding to fill the gaps of the provincial program, or come up with the model that's like OHIP Plus in Ontario, the second round of OHIP Plus, which is, you know, for the under 25 crowd, originally they moved people over in the previous Liberal government that had coverage and, you know, people who didn't. That didn't make a lot of sense because people lost drug coverage that they had before because the formularies are so different. But then Conservatives got elected in 2018, they reversed that and they said, well, we're going to do a fill the gaps. If you have private coverage, you keep it. If you don't have coverage, you move on to the public plan. I think that makes a lot of sense. So no Canadian would be left behind. It's a sensible fiscal approach, and it actually provides a solution that uh, I think works really well in a very patchwork system across the country. So, so national pharmacare to us is very important. We want to make sure everybody does have coverage, but let's do it the right way. That's good. So let's change gears, and I'm going to ask about your educational background. And we see that it's was in psychology and political science and wonder how it has influenced your career. And just so that the question, you know, doesn't seem odd coming on our podcast, it's asked by someone who's the hardest science I took was economics, but please go on. Yeah, no, it's interesting to be leading pharmacists and not a pharmacist. And, you know, that brings advantages in some ways and looking at things differently and bringing a diverse background and expertise to, you know, problem solving and, and really helping move things forward. I think, you know, from a undergraduate perspective, you're, you're trying to get sort of the basics in place to be able to leverage and build momentum in your career. And I started from there really trying to understand the human dynamic. I mean, in anything that you're doing, you're negotiating, you're, you're managing people, you're dealing with conflicts. Um, it's unavoidable. So, you know, if you can, as a leader, if you can develop a style that's adaptable and that brings out the best in people in terms of productivity and building a winning culture to achieve your operational priorities, you know, you need to understand people. And that dynamic comes from psychology. And of course, politics is everything that we do, particularly in advocacy, right? Understanding, you know, what influences people to get to yes, 
And how do you achieve compromise, come up with solutions, because you never get everything you want in working with, you know, sometimes very challenging uh, dynamics, whether it's government or other stakeholders. So I think all of those foundational learnings have contributed to my career. And, and I started actually in advertising and then went to the health insurance space. So I learned the payer side of the business before getting into pharmacy advocacy in, in 2005, when I took a um, short-term contract at then the Canadian Association of Chain Drugstores, now Neighborhood Pharmacies. You know, I said, well, I'm not really interested in the not-for-profit space. I had my own brokerage um, in uh, health insurance um, and so forth. And I said, no, it's, uh, I'll take it for six months, do a couple days a week. I wanted to help out. And then and, and I just became very passionate about uh, leveraging my learnings in private insurance and health insurance to really translating that into helping on the healthcare front and really making a difference in how care is delivered and got a passion and real appetite for lobbying and advocacy. And, and essentially, we run a business. So while we're a not-for-profit and we do advocacy, we're, we're still managing people. We're running a business. Uh, we look at our revenue diversification and our revenue growth just like any other business. So the business acumen and principles need to be there as well. Well, Mark, I'm still reeling as a scientist, the idea of economics as a science, but I'll just continue on on that one. So uh, we're going to invite you, Justin, to play our word association game as we wind down the podcast. So just go ahead and say whatever comes, the first thing that comes to your mind uh, in response to each of the following phrases or words, you know, the OPA. The unifying voice of pharmacy professionals driving practice excellence and in a sustainable financial model is how I would associate OPA. Negotiation. Getting to yes. It's really about finding the, the compromise and delivering on your what is your desired outcome, but, but being able to work with people to get to fair agreements. Leadership. Leadership is about strong communication, rallying people, motivating people around a vision and being able to execute on that vision. Advocacy. Advocacy is about representation. It's about taking very much a set of unified ideas and being able to influence people and decision makers to get to your desired advocacy success. Healthcare. Well, healthcare is just about everything uh, that touches all of us in some point of our life. So healthcare is about uh, you know managing your, your well-being, uh, prevention, as well as treating people and treating people in a way that is in an integrated fashion, we hope, being able to navigate through a system that gives us greater access and, and capacity. Excellent. Well, unbeknownst to you, we've been awarding points for each answer. And I think that's won lots of points, gentlemen. What do you think? Optimum. It's lots as you you do. And finally, we're going to ask you to put on your soothsayer's hat as we move to our prognostication corner. And corner spelt with a K for potassium because it's uh, we get really important reactions to the following question. What bold predictions will you make about the life science industry during the coming 12 to 24 months? I think two things. One, I think we are very much at the beginning, maybe middle of that disruption curve. So I think you're going to see massive disruption in what is the core model of pharmacy over the next 12 to 24 months, driven by entities like Amazon Pharmacy, Talus, and others that have a vertical integration uh, component to their business models. And how we adapt and embrace that will really be the question coming out of that. I think also, you know, from advancements, you look at 
life sciences side, you know, we're moving to more oral oncology and more injectables, which is going to need community pharmacy and not your traditional necessarily specialty providers. And when we look at the, you know, potential for what that means to prolong life and better quality of life, it's simply amazing. What we're already seeing is amazing in advancements in many of the the pharmaceuticals. So that's part of it. And, you know, certainly, are we ready for another pandemic? Pretty confident we're in an endemic. I don't think it's over, but it's certainly not defined as a pandemic. We look at the number of variants, subvariants, but what's the next pandemic? Will we see another pandemic in 24 months? And are we better equipped now to deal with the public health crisis? Some would say yes, some would say no. What are those lessons learned? It would not shock me if there was another type of pandemic, whether it's a continuation of COVID or something else in the next 24 months. Certainly looking at the future, I got a glimpse of it because I was lucky enough to be able to go and provide the Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education uh, scholarships at the uh, Association of Pharmacy Faculties of Canada in Winnipeg. And just the scientific work that these young students are, are providing, you know, in the areas of breast cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, neonatal pharmacokinetics, you know, things like that. It's just amazing to see. So, yeah, pharmacists are not just people counting by twos and fives. It's just some amazing work going on, and it's going to be impacting us in the, in the very near future. So it's great. I'll add to that that it's great to hear a pharmacist's perspective on healthcare matters. It's been long overdue on this podcast. And Justin does a great job communicating on behalf of this important community. So thank you for that, Justin. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me on. These are great conversations. Look forward to hearing it. And to you listeners, we will speak to you again next week. Do you have any questions for Justin? You can reach him by sending an email to health at chronicle.org. If you attach your question as a short voice clip attachment, you might just find yourself part of a future episode and your life will just continue to get better and better from that point on. We hope you enjoyed today's NPC podcast. If you did, please like it, rate it, recommend it, and please do remember to share it with your colleagues and friends. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, or just ask your smart device to play the National Pharmaceutical Congress podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Audible, Spotify, Amazon Music. YouTube or TuneIn Radio. We're everywhere. The NPC podcast is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. Check them out at www.impress.com. I am your announcer, Leona Void, speaking. This podcast was produced by Jeremy Visser, with some help from Christella Tello-Ruiz. Research for this program came from Alan Ryan. The musical theme is performed with Gay Abandon by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the direction of Maestro Herschel Milbrook. We'll speak again next week.